Hey guys, Reed Goosens here. Now before we dive into today's show, I quickly want to tell you about some exciting things happening in 2018. Now in a few months time, I will be launching my brand spanking new book appropriately titled Investing in the US, The Ultimate Guide to US Real Estate. And it is all the best bits from this show transformed into a book. Now, As you are all loyal listeners on this show, we are doing a pre-launch book giveaway. So what you have to do in order to participate in this pre-launch book giveaway is just shoot me an email. It's pretty simple. At info, that's I-N-F-O at readgoosens.com. And in the subject line, you can put the words Kraken book. And in return, I will shoot you back a link where you can go and pre-order your copy of my new book. Now, remember, in that link, there will be an area where you can put the code Kraken, C-R-A-C-K-I-N, and that will enable you to get a discount. I want to thank you all for tuning in. The reason why I do this show is because of my loyal listeners, and this is a way of me giving back to you guys by helping you. You can pre-order the book and get it for free before we launch in a couple of months' time. All right, now back into the show. You know, I guess my, my main why is I want to set an example of what an extraordinary life can look like. I want, I want to be the guy that somebody's like, dude, if this guy can do it, I can do it. If, if he can have health and uh, wealth and family and friends and travel and, you know, have types of experience that everybody else wants, like, like somebody else did it, I know I can do it too. Like, I want to be that guy who's, who's like cheering people on and, and, and being an example of what an extraordinary life can look like. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the U.S., how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show.
Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Tim Brotz. Tim is the CEO and founder of CLE Turnkey Real Estate Investing, a real estate investment company that acquires and transforms distressed commercial and apartment buildings into high-performing investment assets. Working in real estate, Tim has learned how to build a passive real estate business and create residual income that allows him to live his life on his own terms. He's, an, he's here to educate and empower others to become financially free through investing in commercial real estate. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show to share his incredible journey and his experience. But enough out of me, let's get him out here. G'day, Tim. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Dude, doing great, Reed. Appreciate you having me, man. Hey, man. I uh, got was reached out to one of my good buddies that you live in Cleveland, and uh, he's a sort of Aussie by design, his wife's an Australian, um, and he, John Carney, and he said, you've got to interview this guy, and I said, let's, let's bloody do it. So um, really awesome to have you here on the show. To kick it all off, I always ask my guests to rewind the clock and tell me how they made their first ever dollar as a kid. Oh, man. Um, man, when I, when I was growing up, uh, the first couple of things that came to mind of, of how I was able to just kind of scrap and, and, and make money is... Um, I started cutting my own hair when I was like in fifth or sixth grade. And so I would cut my own hair and then my friends would be like, Hey, can you give me a haircut? Instead of paying $10 down at the barbershop, they'd give me two to $5. They'd save money. I'd make a little bit of money. So I did that. And I, and I burned CDs. Remember when like Napster and yep. Kazaa and audio galaxy and all those, you could rip music. I was one of the people that they probably hated because I used to <laughs> download the music for free, put it on a mix CD and then, uh, sell it to my buddies and stuff. So that's, yeah, no, that's, that's, you actually bring up so many good <laughs> memories of just back in the day. Just remember, you remember the folder of, of, of CDs you'd carry around school and you'd swap CDs yep. in and out and there'd be that, that gold look. I can't remember the brand, but there was always that gold looking yep. CD and you'd write like, you know, Blink 182 <laughs> or whatever the hell it was. <laughs> that was all of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember my first ever little album was like one of those Hit Machine 14s. Remember like when they used to release those those CDs and it had like the top, you know, yep, 20 yep. songs of the year or whatever it was. That was my, I remember um, a million, uh, the Peaches, uh, yep. Millions of Peaches, uh, although the Presidents it was. And uh, there's a couple other handful of old school 1990s songs. That was, <laughs> that's awesome, man. Good stuff. <laughs> but dude. Walk me through your journey. You're you're now got an incredible real estate investment business. How did you get to this point? You know, you clearly just didn't stumble into it. What what's your story? Yeah, man. So, you know, I'm I'm 33 years old now. So, when I was going through college was 2003 to 2007, and that's when everybody's making money in real estate. You want to make money, you want to get rich, you know, get involved in real estate. And to a 20-year-old kid back then, you know, it kind of motivated me. So, I um I got involved in real estate and I'm from Cleveland originally, but I moved out to New York City and ended up uh, moving in with my brother who was, who was living out there and um, had a job out there at the time and uh, got a job as a commercial real estate agent. So I was brokering retail, sa retail sales, um, just you know, retail leases, office leases, things like that in Manhattan. And when I was out there, I remember closing one deal, it was 400 square feet and the landlord leased the space for $10,000 a month for with a 4% escalation over a 12-year lease term. And I remember doing the math on this. I'm like, holy cow, this guy's going to do something one time and make $2 million off of it over the next 12 years. And I realized that I was on the wrong side of the coin. Instead of, you know, brokering real estate, I need to be owning real estate. So uh, kind of on a whim, we had some bad weather up in New York that winter. And I was like, I want to move down south. So I moved down to Charleston, South Carolina, lived there for about five years. And uh, right, right after I moved there, though, um, 
decided I want to become a real estate investor. So I'm, I'm a 23 year old kid at the time, didn't have any money, had a few thousand dollars saved up from uh, closing some deals up in New York. But for the most part, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. This is right after the market tank 2009. And so, you know, everything was on discount, but still the cheapest house on the entire MLS was $25,000. And I had about, I don't know, probably eight grand saved up. And then I had a credit card. So I called up my credit card company. I said, Hey, I need you guys to increase my limit from $3,000 to a hundred thousand dollars right now. And they're like, no, nah, not gonna, not gonna happen. And I was like, all right, well, how much can you give me? They said 15. So they gave me 15 grand. I made an offer on that house. Um, at 12, we went back and forth. I ended up getting it for $14,000. And then I just went in, I put a few grand into it of my own money. And, uh, and then I just went and knocked on neighbors doors, handed out flyers, held an open house and sold the house to one of the neighbors. Um, you know, from the time I bought it through renovation, through marketing it and actually closing on it was like 75 days. And, um, I made about 14, eh, let's say 13, $14,000 on it when it was all said and done. So I'm a punk 23 year old kid. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in the worst real estate housing market in 80 years. And I just made a bunch of money. I uh, got the biggest check that I ever got. So um, that lit a fire underneath me. I went and did it again, did it again, got involved in wholesaling and um, a lot of flips, met some people with money who had capital, but then maybe they didn't have the time or maybe they didn't have the, the experience or, or expertise to invest in real estate. And so I worked with them and um, you know, built up a resume. I, I actually gave up, man, probably uh, 50 to 70% equity in, in my first several hundred deals that I did. But I realized I needed to build a resume. I needed to get those deals under my belt so that way I could posture up with private money lenders in the future, posture up with sellers and, and be able to uh, uh, you know, do more in the future. So kind of laying, laying the foundation for that. Um, had, had a couple bad partnerships go south, had to liquidate a couple hundred units, about 150 units. And so three years ago, I, I ended up getting, doing my own thing. And I've been flipping some houses. Um, I was doing about a hundred turnkey single family houses a year for the past couple of years. And, uh, you know, I think we all get involved in real estate because of the allure of passive income, residual income, and, and that mailbox money and having these assets that just spit off money every single month. Like, first of the month, you get paid on October 1st and uh, you got money coming in. You can spend all that money on November 1st. They fill up your bank account again. You spend it all December 1st, you know? And so I think we all get involved in real estate for that reason, but then we all get stuck in this transactional mode of flipping houses, of wholesaling houses. And it's great because it produces a lot of money. We can get rich doing that, but we, I don't think we can build wealth doing that unless you put systems and operations and everything in place. That's another story. But, uh, I was tired of doing the transactional stuff. So 12 months ago, or a little over 12 months ago, I looked at my, my life, you know, where was I spending my, my time and where was I building my wealth? And reflecting on that, I think is really important. I try to do it like at least once a quarter now on, uh, am I going in the direction that I want to be going? I'm, I'm reviewing goals on a regular basis and everything. But uh, that was a pivotal point because I had about 350 apartment units that I was passively involved in. And that had created about 90% of my wealth. And it was only about 10% of my time on that. So I'm like, what if I dedicated all my resources in the single family business to building up more apartment buildings uh, portfolio and, uh, and double down on that? And so that's what I did. I took my team and we just pivoted. Instead of focusing on single family, we started looking only at apartment building deals. Instead of renovating houses, we started renovating apartments. Instead of selling single family, we started just managing our own portfolio. 
And so over the past, uh, you know, about 15, 18 months now, I've grown my portfolio to, um, I have 1,359 units as of today and another uh, 760 units under contract to close by the end of the year. So um, it's amazing, like just putting that out into the universe and making that commitment and burning the ships and, uh, uh, you know, what, what kind of like how it comes back and boomerangs back to you. Awesome. Awesome. Now, this is an incredible story, man. I would, you know, going from, I'm just writing it all down, 23-year-old kid, you know, 75 days, earns $13,000. I'm sure that's just like, yeah. wow, what the hell have I done here? And then all of a sudden growing, you know, I think what you just said before, time versus wealth. Where's, where's your time spent versus where all your wealth is being created? That's a very important uh, tidbit that if you know, those listeners uh, listening out there, doing that every quarter, seeing where the money is coming in from and how much time you're spending on that and not getting so focused on what you just said is transactional wealth, which is, you know, we can always get stuck in that. We're always going to be doing a deal, always going to be doing a deal, always going to be doing a deal. What, what happens when the music stops and it's going to inevitably stop coming up here pretty soon? Um, what, what's going to keep the bills paid, right? What's going to keep the kids happy? What's going to keep the, the missus happy, right? Right. <laughs> so it's it's about all those different things. That's And then you've, you've pivoted into being, um, for, rather than a fix and flipper, into an apartment uh, investor, which is, which is incredible. So walk me through that change of how you pivoted your team into fix and flipping to the apartment investment side. Yeah, I think a lot of people... When they take a look at commercial real estate, it's almost one of those things like, hey, I didn't go to school for commercial real estate or, hey, I didn't come from a generational family that's invested in commercial real estate for decades and decades. And so it, it, it almost seems like a ceiling that you have to break through in order to get into commercial real estate. And the reality is it's not that difficult. It's a little bit different verbiage, but real, re, the reality is like it's just adding some zeros onto numbers. You know, If you're going to rent a single family house for $700 a month, or, uh, or an apartment building for $70,000 a month. Like it's just adding a couple more zeros. There are a few more expenses. And as long as you can read a balance sheet and, and you take care of your property and you screen your tenants, it's not that difficult. So I don't have a big team. There's only five of us, including myself. Um, I'm the CEO. I, I pretty much just focus on marketing and raising money, um, brand building. Uh, my COO really runs the entire operation. And then I have uh, three people on my COO's team. So my acquisition guy, he was just only marketing and doing uh, direct mail and outbound phone calls and all the other guerrilla marketing to find off-market deals on the single family side. I said, hey, let's pivot, just do that for apartment buildings. And so that's all he started doing. And all of a sudden the deal started coming in. I said, everything that's single family, just discard it. Or, you know, we, we actually referred it off to another buddy of ours who uh, as a big single family investor and he paid us some referral fees on it. But the reality is, you know, that's nominal compared to the wealth that we've been able to build over the past 12 months. So focusing on that and then my project manager, he was renovating single family houses to, as to be turnkey rentals. We took all of our same resources, our vendors, our contractors and suppliers, and we just moved them over to, hey, instead of doing, you know, 10 houses a month, we're going to be doing this 40 unit apartment building, you know, over the next six months. So now we need 40 kitchens and 40 bathrooms and uh, all this other stuff. Um, so that was a pretty easy pivot too. you know, a little bit more operational management kind of stuff, but not too bad. And then uh, my dispositions guy, the guy who used to sell all of our single family turnkeys um, to our investors, essentially just, you know, started doing asset management for our portfolio. He was managing the management company to maintain, you know, high occupancy and all that stuff. So it's, um, it was a pretty, it was a lot easier of a pivot than maybe 
I had built up in my mind. And um, I mean, you know, there were a couple of learning curves and a couple of little hurdles and stuff, but bumps in the road, you kind of expect those. And um, everything's, everything's pretty streamlined now, you know, less than 12 months later, which is pretty remarkable. That's awesome. So, and I think the, the biggest thing that you probably realized, because I'm also a multifamily investor, is that the scale, right? You're now not doing one bathroom, you're doing 40 <laughs> bathrooms. So, you're going to get operational efficiencies. Exactly. You're going to get purchase efficiencies. You're going to be able to you know, grind your, your GC or your, whoever's doing your, your turns to being a lot cheaper per door than, say, if you went off and did a exactly. single family. It might cost you $10,000 to do a bathroom or you know, a full gut reno on a, on a very cheap house. It might only now cost you $5,000 on, on an apartment. And I'll give you an example on that. So we, we buy mostly B-class areas. Um, it's very distressed properties. We come in, they're either physically distressed or from a management perspective distressed. And we come in and we stabilize them. But we're usually renovating all the kitchens, all the bathrooms for the most part. And um, when you take a look at a kitchen for an apartment building, you're talking about something that's, I don't know, 12, 15 square feet. Um, so... So we were able to go into the granite fabricators and instead of having to buy these big slabs of granite, we were able to go get granite remnants for like $20 a square foot finished and put them in. So it cost us an extra, I don't know, $100, maybe $200 more than what laminate countertops would cost us. And now we, now we did two things. It attracts better tenants. So they like it. It's easier to, to you know, lease out units. They want to stay because nobody else in B-class areas has granite countertops. And secondly, it hardens our property. You know, if they drop something, they bang something, they put a knife into it, it's not going to ruin the granite like it would with, uh, with laminate. And, and that's something where, you know, maybe you're spending $30, $40 a square foot um, for granite in single family houses. Like we're able to get it for, you know, 20 bucks a square foot. And we're, I think we're going to be able to get it down to like probably 15 to $18 a foot um, pretty soon here because we're doing so much of it now. That's awesome. And again, that's just one mm -hmm. example of different things that you're doing. And, and it also, from a, a maintenance point of view, as you just said, it, it, it hardens the property. It makes the longevity. You don't have to go and then, you know, resurface the countertop. Well, that's 100 years, man. 18 months. Right, exactly, exactly. And then the only thing that's going to go out of date is probably the style, right? <laughs> and you come in and you, you, you update it in 10 years' time to the new style. But that's awesome. So talk to me about like how you built that, that your portfolio of over 1,000 units. Are you actively uh, the operator or are you doing a little bit of capitalizing for other folks? How does that all work in your ecosystem of businesses? Yeah, a little bit of both. In Cleveland, you know, I have the team. I have a management company also in addition to my my staff here. So, uh, yeah, we own several hundred units here in Cleveland and my team operates, manages everything. So, um, we do bring on some private investors for that, but I don't syndicate the way that normal, you know, a lot of other people syndicate. Um, I usually keep 80, 90% equity in all my projects. And then, uh, my stuff down in like Georgia and out of state in South Carolina, Texas and, um, uh, and Florida, in those areas, I usually have a, or I always have, like a local boots on the ground uh, operator who I joint venture with. So I'm pretty, you know, I have the balance sheet to pretty much get any size loan. I have uh, access to a lot of capital so I can go and uh, raise the money for those projects. Obviously, they have a lot of experience in this. And so I can kind of mentor and coach and advise uh, that. And so, you know, I, I look for great qualified single family operators who are, who are stud operators on the single family side and they're trying to like break through that barrier and get into apartment buildings. So this is a way that helps them do that and it helps me grow my business without having to take on more overhead. And so I joint venture with them and 
Um, yeah, on those projects, you know, we split up the equity, which, you know, in, in traditional syndication, you know, if you were splitting it each, I get 10%, they'd get 10% or 15%, something like that. With my operation, you know, we're able to split it where it's like they're getting 40% and I'm getting 40%. So it's a lot more um, attractive and palatable for them and for me. And, um, you know, creates a lot of opportunity, which is a lot of fun. And it creates some diversity in my portfolio too, because I'm in several different markets across the country and um, makes, it, makes it work pretty well. So I like it. So, so talk to me a little bit about how you structure it, because it's always interesting to learn from other operators how to structure most efficiently, I should say. But it also, for those folks out there listening, thinking they want to start, like how did you get started? And what's the structure you started with originally to what you can now negotiate based on your track record? Yeah, so traditional syndication, first of all, you got to put it in perspective. So traditional syndication is, okay, I'm an operator. Let's say it's my own pro project. I'm going to go raise the money. I'm going to find the deal. I'm going to, you know, get the loan. I'm going to oversee the renovations. I'm going to oversee the property management. I'm going to oversee this project for the next 10, 12, 15 years of my life, however long I, I manage this thing. And my investors, and, and for that, I usually get 20 to 30% equity in the deal. Okay. My investors though, they invest in the project and uh, they would get 70 or 80% of the deal, but they only get paid a preferred interest rate if the property's performing. If it's not performing, that pref doesn't get paid out. It's all based on cash flow. And it's usually, um, and, and that model works for more stabilized deals. That's okay uh, for prop projects that are, you know, stabilized, cash flowing from day one, and uh, everything's good to go. The, the issue with it is I'm, I'm a, investor. I don't buy retail anything. I'm always looking for wholesale deals to, so that I can force the appreciation by putting in that value add and, um, and creating that sweat equity in the deal. So I don't like that. Like there's a lot of work. There's a lot more work um, in my deals than there is just, you know, raising the money and stuff. So uh, on that, so, so, you know, traditional syndications, okay, if it's a stabilized deal. If it's not a stabilized deal, I don't think it's fair for the operator and it's not fair. It's not beneficial for the um, investor either. So the way that I've structured it is because I'm only looking for wholesale deals that need pretty significant value adds, um, but because they're smoking deals, I can do this. So I pay a 10% pref to my investors and, um, and because I'm doing such a significant value add, I'm able to stabilize the deal and then refinance in a very short period of time. So instead of the investor's money being out there for you know, five, seven, 10 years, my investor's money is only out there for 12 to 24 months max. Then they get paid back. And the PREF, although, you know, from bank perspective, you can't pay a PREF because the property may not be performing well enough. I just, I, I fund a reserve account. I essentially overborrow, fund a reserve account so I can make those payments on a monthly basis. I found that investors want to know exactly how much they're making on their money and they want to see the deposits in their account. So that was a big deal. And then they still want a little piece of the action on the back end. So I pay them a 10% PREF. And then when I refinance a property, they get paid out in full. And then I still give them another 10%, 20% equity on the back end, just depending on the deal. So they love it. They eat it up. You know, it's very hard for me to raise money from uh, traditional syndicators or tr traditional lenders and that because it's just hard for them to, to understand it. But the reality is, dude, if, if you buy a $10 million building, Reed, and it's worth $10 million and you're buying it at fair market value, even if you have 70% equity in that, it's not worth anything because you're buying it for 10 million and it's worth 10 million. With my deals, I'm buying, you know, I'm all into my deals for like 
six to six and a half million dollars on that $10 million project. So even though they only have 10% equity in that, that's three and a half million dollars of equity. So that, that, their equity is worth $350,000. So it's actually worth more than if they had, you know, more equity in a, in a retail price deal. Does that make sense? No, it make, makes, makes perfect sense. And then you have the ability to then go and refinance mm -hmm. it pretty quickly because of that additional, you know, inherent locked in value that you have from day one. So going in and moving the needle, say you only did 20% of the units or you did 30% of the units, you can quickly refi because you have so much equity built up already, right? That's, that's essentially yep. the business. But it only works with value add projects, you know, or if you get something stabilized, that's a smoking deal. You can take it down and then still refi back out if you're at a low enough cost basis versus what the appraised value is. So, so talk to me about the, the overall risk of that versus, you know, the two different, we talked about the syndication model, more, more stabilized, re, you know, we'll call it retail investors who want their coupon clipped every, every month or whatever versus the deals that you're going out and chasing. Does that add some risk to the deal? I understand that you might be buying it at such low value, but then are you buying in areas that are maybe worse off or are you buying areas that are maybe not as transitioning as quickly? How do you, how do you, co how do you balance the two risk, you know, given that where we are in the market cycle and all that sort of stuff? Great question, man. So, uh, so, so as far as areas concerned, you know, people rate projects, Hey, it's a B class project or it's a, like, I think you need to rate it two ways. You need to rate the area and then you need to rate the building itself. So in the area, you know, I, and I, and I do this very arbitrarily, like a class areas are places where people like us would desire to live. Like these are the best school districts, the best areas, the safest neighborhoods, all that B class areas are still safe, still good school districts. Uh, like I grew up in a B class area, not, not the best. Nobody is like trying to desire, like wants to move into that community unless you're in the hood, you know, and you're trying to get into there. But, um, but like, you know, dude, if I fell on hard times or if I wasn't as ambitious as I am, I'd be totally fine raising my family where I grew up because still, like I said, good schools, good, you know, um, safe neighborhood, all that stuff. C class are areas where maybe you're willing to invest or go there, but you don't want to live there. And D class is like the hood, places you don't want to go whatsoever. I only invest in B class areas. So I don't even like C class areas um, to invest in. I try to only stick to B class areas and A class areas if I can find a good deal. It's harder to find deals in A class areas though. So, and then the buildings though themselves are usually um, physically distressed or managerial dist managerially distressed. So those are probably, I'd rank those buildings more like a CD type property. Um, but that's what you want. If you're investing, you want the ugliest house on the best block, right? So I do the exact same thing in apartment buildings. I'm trying to find um, uh, the most distressed property in the best areas. And the way that we do that is not by buying through brokers. We go all direct off market, direct to seller type stuff. So we're, we're doing guerrilla marketing. We're doing outbound phone calls. We're reaching out to our list of, uh, of other investors and brokers and, and contacts. We're um, doing direct mail. We're, we're driving for dollars. We're dialing for dollars. We're doing all the things that other people aren't willing to do. And we're able to find deals that other people can't find. So I've picked up, you know, over a thousand units in the past 12 months in B class areas that have stabilized, you know, they're not stabilized right now, but once I get them stabilized, they're, they're kicking off cap rates of 10 to 14%, which is unheard of um, in most apartment building areas now. So here's, here's why I do that. A couple different reasons. One is I want to get my investors their money back as soon as possible. If I found something that was totally stabilized and I could refinance it and kick my investors back their money inside 12 months, I would buy it in a heartbeat, but they're a lot harder to find right now in this market. 
So what I found is these distressed buildings, and I'm willing to go probably a little bit smaller than what the REITs and the hedge funds and the family offices are willing to buy. Like they, they won't even look at anything under 100, 200 units. Me, I'm willing to buy stuff that's, you know, 50 units to 100 units is really like my sweet spot or 50 to about 150 units is my sweet spot because it's usually too big for the small investors. It's too small for the, the real estate trusts and the hedge funds. And, um, and maybe there's a little bit of co competition in there still, but I'm willing to do the value add that a lot of other people, and I'm qualified to do the value add that a lot of, a lot of other people can't get the financing or the funding for. I have such a good track record of performing on these deals that I have debt funds and um, kind of like hard money investors that are willing to fund 100% of, uh, of these costs that most other people can't qualify for because they don't have the track record. So that's been kind of my sweet spot. 10 to 14% cap rates is hugely impressive. So are you taking down assets that are more, um, look at, put it this way, how, much, how many dollars are you putting in per unit in order to reap that reward? And, and what's the occupancy rate? Because I think that would be able to paint a picture for the listeners to say, okay, I understand the type of assets sure. is going on. So, up. I mean, our, our occupancy, when I say it's distressed, it's, it's distressed, but we're still at like, the lowest I've ever bought is I think a 60% occupancy. So it's not like it's a vacant building. It's still at least able to cover its, its, its operating expenses. Maybe not the debt service, so right. I need to be a little bit creative in how I, how I handle that. But there's still like, at least there's some rents coming in. They're not getting broken into as we're doing renovations and all that. And, and a lot of them are 80, 90% occupied or 80, 85% occupied, but there's really low rents also. Right, right. No, no. And I was just saying, but there's a story there in which you can go and sell it to a bank. You can say, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. look, it's only 70 or 60%. I'm not going to qualify for agency. I've got to come in and get bridge on this thing. But the yep. fact is, I just got to fill this bad boy up and I'm good. I'm good to go. So exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, and then talk to me a little bit about how you're trying to find these deals out of state, because I know you said you, you want to be below those institutional guys, but you're still dealing with, let's call them mom and pop investors when you're dialing for dollars they're still pretty sophisticated guys right they're not the average single family i don't know what the hell i'm doing and i've got a you know my husband's just left me and i've got all this you know you know these stories that people you know you help them get out of these are guys that are typically either one out of state or two have a, a small portfolio of a couple of hundred units so they're a little bit more sophisticated so how do you go about the negotiating and trying to you know get them to sell to you in such a hot market you know the united states and multifamily is really hot right now across the country so how are you putting yourself in front of the brokers and the guys who are, who are out actively chasing them? Yeah, sure. Um, good question. So one is I get a lot of my out of, I only buy out of state if it comes through an operator that I, that I know locally in that area. So I just bought one in uh, just outside of Dallas, Fort Worth area, small building, but I got some good buddies over there who run a, an eight figure construction business and an eight figure flipping business. So they're like, hey, we want to get into apartments. We got this small deal. It's like a 40-unit deal. And uh, they brought it to me. Uh, pretty, pretty easy deal. Pretty stabilized. And um, I know their boots on the ground. They're right there. They can handle it. And so they're always, my local, whoever the local operators are, are sending me deals from their local marketplace. So I'm not actually doing marketing in Texas or doing marketing in Georgia. It's partners that I, that I know there or people that I know just from going to real estate mastermind groups and networking events and that kind of stuff that I know are great operators that are then sending deals to my acquisitions team. My acquisitions team just underwrites them and then says, Hey, here's what we would need to be at. Let's, let's go back and forth. And you know, we, we definitely do things that posture us up more 
than, um, than other buyers and than brokers as well. Because the reality is, I mean, you, you know what it's like, you've gotten daisy chains of, of wholesalers sending you properties. Like I've had wholesalers send me my own properties before. And you know, so I'll give you an example. I got 200 units I'm, I just contracted here in Cleveland um, in a good area and, and the broker, it's actually through a broker, but we were like direct to the seller before the broker got involved, before the broker listed it kind of a thing. And so uh, the broker's like, well, I got 37 people that I can, that I can uh, or have inquired on this thing. And I said, listen, man, you might have 37 people, 35 of them are going to bring the deal to me because I'm the biggest buyer in town for this type of, of property. And I'm saying this on the phone with a seller listening. I said, the other two people aren't going to be able to perform. And you're going to be crawling back to me in six months asking me to buy. And I'm going to buy at a lower price than what I'm willing to offer you right now because interest rates just went up on Wednesday. You know, they're going to go up again in December and they're going to go up again. They're projected to go up a quarter percent every single quarter until 2020, until the new, like, uh, 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 the election comes up. So for the next two years, interest rates are only rising, which gives buyers a lower buy buying power, which means you're not going to be able to, um, take as much money off the table. Every day you wait longer, the more money you're losing on your apartment building. And you posture up like that and you educate these sellers in that manner. They're like, oh shit, yeah, you're right. I, I do have to sell this thing as soon as possible and uh, get off my plate because I'm not gonna be making this much money on this property 12 months from now or 18 months from now and definitely not 24 months from now. So, you know, I, you take that kind of posture and, and um, kind of puff your chest out a little bit and, and you see, you know, sometimes we win, sometimes we don't. But on that one, we ended up getting the contract because... I was able to, you know, talk like I knew what the hell I was talking about. And so, you know, when I partner up with my JV partners, I'm like, listen, just put me on the phone. Let me do it because I have the experience. I, you can hear what I say. You can um, listen to the words that I'm saying and all that kind of stuff and how I say those words. And it kind of educates them on how to then negotiate and gets us the deal. Awesome. No, that's, that's, that's really important. I think tidbits there. The partner is you're not actively marketing in these in these states you're you're creating key partnerships with other active investors who may not be necessarily in your space but have a very as you said stud operators like flippers or wholesalers in order to help them break into that next tier of commercial real estate. So I think that's very, very key. Uh, and their boots on the ground, their way to give you more education into a market that you may not necessarily know 100%, right? You don't know the ins and outs of Fort Worth, or you don't maybe know the ins and outs of some 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 um, some submarkets in Alabama, whatever it might be, right? So you're, it's a way of which leveraging, which is really, I think, the, 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 the takeaway, the leveraging key partners through different ways of networking is a really, really important way. And I think for all those listeners listening out there right now, take the, write that down because that's so important, right? And, and, and to understand how to then leverage each other and then you're bringing on experience, you're bringing on net worth, you're bringing on bank balance uh, and you're also bringing on a different way of structuring the deal, which is very attractive. And then you're also bringing on a bit of a way of you know, gift to the gab. You know, let's, let's be honest, right? You know, you have that gift and you want to be able to you know, make sure that the seller knows that the hell they're dealing with someone who's serious and they could potentially lose this deal to, right. to fluff. And, 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 and you can do that in commercial real estate because we're talking about bigger dollar amounts. You know, if you do it in single family, you're talking about $200,000 house, there's only so much profit. You can't, you can't collaborate the way that you can in commercial. Instead of talking about $200,000 house, you're talking about a, a, a $2 million or $12 million apartment building. There's a lot more juice in the squeeze. You know, it's, it's better to have you know, a quarter of a watermelon 
than 100% of a grape. You know what I mean by that? Like there's a lot more season in a quarter of a watermelon than there is in 100% of a grape. And so, um, yeah, you can just be, you can be more generous and get, able to focus on everybody's unique abilities, you know? So there's some people who are just phenomenal at finding off-market deals in single family. They could probably do the same thing in multifamily, but they're, they're, they could be terrible operators. They, or or they, maybe they don't even want to. Maybe it's more of a lifestyle choice. Or, hey, listen, let me just find the deals. And instead of you kicking me a, a you know, 1% finder's fee or a 3% commission or something like that, give me that in equity. And it might not sound like a lot, but 3% equity on a $10 million deal is $300,000 worth of equity, you know? So that can create some real wealth for that wholesaler who has no way of creating real wealth right now and can create a lifestyle type of income for them. So they do that enough. They have zero responsibility or headaches or liability in this whole thing. And they still have a piece of the equity. That's a smoking deal. No, and it's also a way of, again, go back to that sure. leverage. They're leveraging you to get into a deal that they may not necessarily know how to the experience and they've been able to just, you know, scale quickly. So I think that's, that's really important. Mate, I want to, before we wrap up the show, really get into your lifestyle by design with, with all this stuff that you're doing. You know, what is your why behind creating a business in which you're able to live life on your terms? First thing that comes to mind is, is family. You know, a lot of people say family. And mine's more time with my family, not to like pass on real estate to my kids. My kids might want to be friggin' ballerinas or something in New York or in LA or whatever. Like they could potentially not give a shit about real estate whatsoever. But I want my kids to have enough money to do whatever they want, you know, but not, not too much where they can't do anything though. I don't like, there's, there's a balance there, you know? <laughs> um, but, but I think it's, you know, here's the thing. I, I feel like wealth is, it's like sunlight. Like it is so abundant. Like you having a bunch of sunlight doesn't take any sunlight away from me. You know, like you having a bunch of wealth and, and putting in like creating generational wealth for your family doesn't take any wealth. Like, yeah, there's, there's like, I think there's uh, last thing I, I saw, there's like over 44,000 apartment buildings in the United States, over a hundred units. There's, I don't know, probably 10 times that many under a hundred units. So like, how many apartment buildings do you need to build whatever the hell kind of lifestyle you could ever want? And so it doesn't affect me by training and coaching and helping other people. And, um, you know, like, like I said at the beginning, like the money was a big motivator for me initially. It's not that big of a motivator anymore. Now, once you're, you'll find that once you have a certain level of income and you can cover all those basic needs like food and clothing and shelter and, you know, a little bit of fun and doing that kind of stuff, you don't need that much in order to, you know, like happiness does not change whether you make a hundred thousand dollars a year or a hundred million dollars a year. Like it's a choice after those basic needs are met. And so it's more about just like paying it forward, helping out other people. I want to live, you know, I guess my, my main why is I want to set an example of what an extraordinary life can look like. I want, I want to be the guy that somebody's like, dude, if this guy can do it, I can do it. If, if he can have health and uh, wealth and family and friends and travel and, you know, have types of experience that everybody else wants, like, like somebody else did it. I know I can do it too. Like I want to be that guy who's, who's like cheering people on and, and, and being an example of what an extraordinary life can look like. So that's really my, my why. And, and, and that conveys and, and per, you know, uh, for my children and stuff too. And I want them to make sure that they have that same type of mentality as well. 
I think you, you mentioned two really good points there. One was that there's a choice, like there's a choice in which you're, you can make your, your mindset happy, right? You, you know, you said a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred million dollars. There comes a point where money, which originally was the driving factor, which a lot of people strive towards and get involved in real estate because they're sick of running the rat race or whatever it might be. But then they get to a point where you're like, oh, I've got that. I've got all the basic needs met. It's ne- and, and people are still unhappy, but then it now comes back to their mindset in which they're approaching life. And I think you've sort of nailed it on the head that there's, once you get to that certain level, it's just like, you've got to have more to give and you've got to have more to do and what makes you tick and what's your why. Otherwise, what the hell are you doing all this for, right? You, 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 you're out there just you know churning, churning the, creating a job for yourself and then you become unhappy again. So I think those are two really, really awesome things. So... With all that said, you you started off with being a money guy, focused on money. You've, you've now transitioned to family. What is your sort of? What do you think? If you had an unlimited amount of money and time, what would you like to be doing as a the juices that make you tick? What 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 gets you up in the morning in order to pursue those those juices and, and the things that make you tick? What are you most passionate about? I love inspiring other people. You know, I love helping other people see themselves more as more than what they see themselves as, you know, like, like see themselves as capable of doing more than what they're currently doing or, or see themselves as doing more than what they think that they can do. And, um, and then helping them, helping them do that. Like that's a big driving factor. When I get messages, like I, you know, I provide a lot of content on social media and I do coaching and seminars and that kind of stuff too. But, um, like the messages that I get from that, of like, dude, I just bought a 48 unit apartment building. It's going to change my family's wealth. Like da 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 and this and that, like, those are the, those are the types of things that really drive me now. And, um, uh, I'm still involved a little bit in the raising of private money aspect of, uh, of my business from an operational standpoint, I'm not involved at all. Um, but from, from, I'm involved a little bit from a raising of private capital and like a little bit of the finance side. Um, I'm, I'll be dialed out of that by the end of the year. And then, you know, hundred percent of my time is going to be spent on just, um, providing value and helping people, uh, do that kind of stuff and helping people build their own wealth. And, you know, I, I think it goes back to, you know, you help enough other people get what they want. You're going to have everything that you want. And, um, you know, fortunately for me, the money part's taken care of now. And now it's all about just giving back and, and having some fun while, while you're at it. Nice, man. Well, dude, I'd like to wrap up the show by asking all my guests to give me their top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Mate, what is the most uh, successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals, a daily habit? So one of the things, we didn't even talk about this, but I time block a lot. So I time block time for my family. Um, I Do we have a couple minutes to go? Can I, can I tell you a story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, you, no, no go, go into it. This is, this is all, this shows for you, man. Time blocking, I think this is a really good, good aspect. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about, one, a story, but also two, Give the listeners actionable steps about how you time block. Like, like show me how you sit down in a day and go, okay, what is time blocking? Because someone's like, what the hell is time blocking? Explain, yeah. explain sort of what that is and so, how that works. Uh, about, about 12, 9, 12 months ago, I, was, I came home from work and I was sitting in like this little, my little office area. It's like a little cubby that I have in my house. And, um, and I'm, I'm shooting out some text messages. It was like 6.30, like right after dinner time, whatever. And my, my three-year-old daughter comes over and starts tugging on my, on my sleeve. and says, hey, daddy, daddy, you know, come play with me in the playroom. I said, hang on one second, baby. And I'm, and I'm 
got my head down. I'm sending a text message. And she, you know, I'll, you ever seen a three-year-old in like an aisle in, in the grocery store and like, mommy, daddy, can I have this? 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 You know, it was like one of those. I was like, baby, hang on one second. Let me finish this message. Da, da, da. And she asked me like three or four times, can I come and play with her in the playroom? And I just said, yeah, hang on. And, um, and then eventually I send the text message and I look up, she's not there anymore. She's over there playing by herself. And I sat back and I reflected on that and I'm like, what, what the hell am I doing? Like, first of all, this is family time. I shouldn't be sending text messages when I should be playing with my kids. I've already been at work all day. And secondly, what does that, what does that train your, your child? Like, if you think about it, if your, if your daughter comes to you and asks you for attention and every time she comes to you, she leaves feeling disappointed, she's going to start associating her parents with disappointment. And then she goes and tries to find satisfaction and other things elsewhere. And um, then that trains her to go and like date guys when she's 18, 20 years old who ignore her. Like I'm, I'm the guy who loves her more than any other guy in the entire world. And, and, and if I ignore her, imagine how somebody else is going to, you know, so like it was, it was like a real punch in the gut, man. It was very, very difficult to like swallow that pill. And I decided that from that point on, I was not going to do anything uh, or do any, any phone, any business. And I was going to time block my evenings just for family. Same way that, that you would time block, like I'm time blocking an hour right now for this podcast. I wouldn't take a phone call right now. I wouldn't schedule another meeting. And, and so like in my calendar, this is time blocked. So I do the exact same thing from 4.30 in the afternoon. Well, actually it's technically it's four o'clock, uh, but you know, some travel and stuff time in order to get back to my house. Um, but from 4.30 and essentially until the next morning is time blocked for family. And so I, when I get home, I put the phone on the charger upstairs so I can't even be, I can't even think about going and answering it. And it's 100% family time. And so what that does then is it makes you more present. And a lot of people are like, well, you know, I, I'd be losing out on a bunch of business or, you know, how do you, how do you maintain a successful business? Like not taking those phone calls later on. Dude, I thought, I, first of all, I didn't give a shit because family was more important or spending time was more important. But secondly, like when I told my staff, when I told other people that I do business with that I was doing that, they wanted to do more business with me and they respected me more because they knew where my priorities lied. They knew that it wasn't about money. It was more about family and relationships. And because of that, um, it resonated big time with a lot of people I do business with. And I do more business because of it. It's also made me more efficient in the time that I'm at work. I'm only in the office probably, I don't know, 10 to 4 o'clock each day. So like five or six hours a day, four days a week. And because um, uh, I time block my mornings also so I can read and I can work out. Um, and so I'm, I'm in the office. When I am in the office, then I'm super efficient with my time. I don't schedule nonsense phone calls. I don't go and grab coffee with somebody to shoot the shit. I, like, I'm super efficient with my time, focusing on the things that are most important and the highest return on my time. And, uh, and by doing that, I think that's been a big factor in why I've been able to grow at the pace I've been able to grow because I've eliminated all the stuff like surfing social media and like just consuming content and all of a sudden you lift your head up and it's an hour and a half later and you're like, what did I just do for the past hour of my life? So, um, a lot of that stuff I've eliminated and I just focus on the things that are the highest ROT return on time, uh, for me and everything else I staff out and I make sure that somebody on my team uh, is doing their job. And, and I think the biggest takeaway is, is you, your ability to say no, 
right? The ability to say no and set up uh, a limit and a boundary in is a way that which people can then you earn respect. Very difficult to do, by very, the way. Very difficult because everyone's always like, yes, 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 I want to take on all these meetings. I want to do all this stuff. I want to be texting on these social meetings, blah, 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 blah. Otherwise, I'm going to miss out. It's all that, that, that fear, that chatter in your head about, I'm going to have the fear of missing out if I'm not, you know, I'm not hustling or whatever. And this, this word hustle applies not just to business, but it applies to family. It applies to your health. It applies to being a, just a good person in, in, in the universe. So there's all this hustle that you know, people talk about success and, and I think you, you've really nailed it on the head and you, you sounds like you got it incredibly well efficient and dialed in now is that being successful in life, there's, there's, there's many aspects of life. Business is just one of them. If, you, if you're successful in business and your family sucks, you're divorced and your kids hate you, that's not success, you know. What the hell, you know? And I think you, I think you you really emulated that with your daughter and that 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 sort of aha moment where she came to you and approached and said, "Dad, I want your time. I'm here to beg with you." Uh, and now I'm, I'm sure you're not always doing that when she's at school or she's like, you know, go go play by yourself. Yeah, but, yeah. But but there's times of the day where she now knows she can come to dad and say, "Hey, I want to be I want to be present with you. I want to help me with the homework. I want to go outside and you know throw the the, the football around or whatever." And, it might and be. it's and it goes the same way with. When I'm at work, my family knows that I need to be dialed into work during those five, six hours, you know, that, that I can't have distractions outside of work because that's my work time. In order for me to have dedicated family time, I need to have dedicated work time too. So, um, but dude, you, you made a great point in that by saying no, and here's what I found, like you're worried you're going to lose out on business by saying no, right? The more you say no, the more your yeses mean, meaning like now there's this, now there's this like, you know, I wonder if I can get a hold of Tim. Like if, if I can get Tim to come and grab lunch with me, like, Oh my, nobody's able to get Tim to have lunch. And, and there's like this, uh, you're almost like out of reach and people like are even more in demand of you and your time. Um, because you're saying no so much more often. So people want to be around, they want to come out to a seminar. They want to joint venture with me that much more. And like, because they realize, um, that, I, that I've got that piece, you know, squared away now. So it's, it's powerful, man. Love it, love it, love it, man. So that was a huge, that was an awesome, awesome answer to my question. But here's the second question. Who's the most influential person in your career to date? In business, I'd say uh, two people. One, one is my dad. I've always seen my dad. I mean, he uh, grew up in a single parent family and uh, got, got a job with the police department. They paid for his education. So he got his associate's degree, his bachelor's degree, his master's degree, and then his PhD, uh, all while raising four kids. And then he worked as a, a professor at a local college and um, was a full-time police officer. And then also started a business that shoot, probably made him four or five times as much money as his full-time job, his part-time business did. And I, you know, just watching his work ethic and, and the way he um, associates with people and, um, connects with people that he doesn't even know and strangers and creates that, uh, uh, that relationship and stuff and, and how likable he is and how he analyzes problems and doesn't get too worked up about most stuff. Um, that's been a big influence on my life. And then, uh, from like a business outside of my family, uh, a guy named Mark Evans who runs a big turnkey business flips about 300 houses a year in the turnkey space. I think he's just wholesaling now. Um, uh, but he's, he's just a smart business guy. He happens to have a real estate business, but he's got a couple other companies too. And uh, Mark Evans and, and plugging into his uh, mastermind about three and a half years ago was a big difference maker for me in my life and my, my business acumen. That's awesome. Who's the, what is the most influential tool in your business, whether it be software, hardware, or could actually be a person? 
Dude, I, I'm pretty simple, man. Like, like I run, I run uh, most of my business from an Excel spreadsheet and, uh, and that's about it. So I'd have to say Excel. <laughs> Excel, keep it simple, right. stupid, right? <laughs> uh, mate, what's been the biggest failure in your career to date? And what did you learn from that failure? I'm gonna have to say a failed partnership. I think partnerships are one of those things like you go to seminars and you're learning something new and you're a little bit scared and, uh, and you meet other people who might be a little bit scared and you wanna just be scared together, you know, <laughs> like instead of trying to figure this out on your own or, um, or you partner up with somebody that you know might not have the same morals or ethics but they have access to, you know, other resources that maybe you, you uh, don't have access to so it makes your life a little bit easier or whatever. Um, I've, I've gotten into that partnership before people that had a bunch of money, but you know, we're always, it's almost, dude, it's like, you ever meet anybody who, who cheats on their spouse and then all of a sudden they're like frantic about their spouse cheating on them. And it's like, they're just projecting on other people for their own misvalues, you know? So in business, I've met people that just screw other screw over other people in business all the time. So then they're always worried about getting screwed themselves. And um, I, I've been in business with those kinds of people and people who just like look for an angle every single time, even though you're like their business partner and they're, they're trying to screw. I'm like, dude, I got to get out of this, out of this relationship. And I had a couple of partnerships that have been like that in the past and um, you know, had to cut those off. They were kind of tough. One of them got really, um, was really stressful and I almost left a few hundred thousand dollars on the table because of it, but, um, ended up working out and, um, you know, so like I, partnerships, I'm, I'm kind of a, if people come to me and they're like, Hey, I'm looking to partner up with this person. I'm like, listen, dude, run your own business, you know, be a hundred percent owner of your own business. There are some partnerships that can work out, but, um, you know, if you lose money, it can get ugly. If you make money, God forbid you make money, it can get even uglier. <laughs> and so I tell people like, have your own business, maybe joint venture on a per deal basis, but don't get married to somebody across all of your business ventures that you're committed to that one person always. Like, like there's stuff you can plan for. There's a lot of other stuff that you can't plan for. Life happens to everybody. Personal circumstances change. And, um, you know, although you want to think about all the positives and stuff, it can get ugly. And if you got, if you're totally in bed and then you have to liquidate all of your properties and all of your assets that have taken you years or decades to build, dude, that can get ugly, man. So I, I try to stay out of partnerships, but I do joint venture. I love joint venture partnerships, like on a one-on, like a one-off basis. Um, I do those, but as far as like me personally, I don't, I don't partner with anybody else. Yep. No, I think that's really good advice. And um, doesn't bring down the house of cards, right? You don't want to have that one that, that one, house, one, one card that will just collapse it all because it's all tied together. I think that's, that's really, really important. Mate, final question. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation and want to find a little bit more about what you do, be in your sphere, be in, you know, influenced by you? Where can they go? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so my, my investment website is cleturnkey.com and my, uh, my commercial, I have another um like a training and coaching program called commercial empire and that's commercialempire.com. So hit me up on either of those Facebook, you know, I know we're Facebook friends read and um, you know, I, I provide a lot of content on Facebook and stuff too. So um, hit me up on Facebook, send me a message on Facebook and like I'm, I'm, I still respond to messages. Sometimes it takes me a couple of days and it's one of those activities that I batch uh, like once a week kind of a thing, but um, yeah, hit me up. I, I usually answer and, and can at least uh, share some resources and, and insight. 
if anybody has any additional questions. So I appreciate it, man, dude. Thank you so much for having me on here. Thank you for all the value and the content that you're bringing to the table and uh, uh, really helping a lot of people out with, with all the value that you bring. So thank well, you. Mate, mate, I want to thank you as well because I want to just quickly summarize some of the things that I've taken away from today's conversation with you. I think the big thing is, is, is finding key partners in key states that you may not necessarily be able to you, you can't be everywhere at once, right? And so you've gone out through strategic networking, finding the guns in certain aspects that can you know, um, help your business or sort of support your business. So whether it be a, a turnkey provider in a, in, a, in a city that you might not be in, they might find, be able to find you an apartment building that can help them leverage into bigger deals, uh, finding a wholesaler that may not necessarily have the bandwidth or the experience to then leverage them up into a deal. I think that was really, really important, the key partnerships. Um, being a really creative way of, of structuring your syndications in order to find that value and, and, and to keep more of the equity for yourself in, in order to create longer term wealth. I think that was really key. Uh, but the biggest thing that I also took away from, from speaking with you today is your value to your family, is the value of your time blocking and making sure that you're being successful in all aspects of your life and not necessarily about just being successful in business. So I think that really is kudos to you, kudos to what you're doing with your business and, and how you've developed yourself and the ability to say no. Uh, and as you said, the ROT, the return on time, rather than you know just be scatterbrained across a million and one activities and you just never have time to be successful with your family. Uh, did, it, did I leave anything out? No, man, uh, it's, this has been... Awesome. I really appreciate everything. You, you've oh. asked some awesome questions. I love the way that you summarize things and um, man, providing a ton of value. So um, I, I know it comes back tenfold and I hope it comes back a hundredfold to you. So I appreciate everything that you do, bud. Mate, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your week and we will catch up soon. All right, brother. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Another episode jam-packed with some incredible actionable advice and tips to go out and start crushing it in the United States if you want to invest here in the US. Now, make sure you check out all the show notes up on my website at reedgoosens.com and any links we did mention on today's show will be up there so you can check out Tim and everything that he is doing over in his business. Thank you again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show and we'll do it all again next week. So take care, be safe and remember, happy investing.